0: I'm going here But can we go to
1: This is Hell. Manufacturing descent since 1996. This is Hell. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed host Chuck Mertz producing this week's show is Alex Jerry. Alex, how was your weekend?
2: Uh, good. I've been thinking about becoming one of those pawn guys.
1: Pawn guys? Like pawn shop guys? No. P-A-N. Oh, jeez. The leaf and the nut Blech. that you chew. You, ever, you ever tried it? Blah. How do you know? Blah. I tried it once. It was horrible. And then I saw the... It looks like blood on the street every morning. Yeah, that's awesome. It's really awful. Just looking
2: like you're spitting blood all the time? That's the primary appeal to me.
1: It looks like there was a knife fight between two guys who were uh, drinking chai because there's always a chai cup sitting there on the ground, styrofoam chai cup, about a four-ounce cup, and then there's blood all around it. It's really... a
2: good way to cover up a crime. (laughs) I know. I
1: was supposed to go to a friend's uh, holiday tree lighting party, which doesn't sound all that exciting, but a couple of years ago they actually got a replica of Sue the T-Rex downtown got a replica of Sue's head and that was part of their tree lighting ceremony they had to get take the frame off the door to get Sue's head into their house it was the most bizarre thing and I missed that year and I saw the videos and I was really pissed that I missed it but I missed it again this year because I fell asleep during my annual hate-watching of Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. I really have to do some sort of annotated DVD. You watch this every year? Oh, dude, I so much enjoy hate-watching those so much. There are so many class and race, and it's not like Santa Claus is coming to town where Santa Claus actually threatens to beat children and the kids freak out. These shows... (laughs) do not age well with time and it is really every person is a complete dick in Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer even the dentist who you're supposed to like he ends up like doing a Lawrence Olivier marathon man on the abominable snowman So, it, the whole thing is so disturbing why is there a dentist? I, dude, see you need to watch the show with your kid, make it an annual tradition while you're yelling all sorts I got, of I got things.
2: enough things to hate already with my kid <laughs>
1: Uh, Just kidding. Just kidding. So it's pretty anti-Semitic, which is amazing. All right. Maybe I'll give it a shot. (laughs) That's what I'm saying. It's really out of hand today on This Is Hell. The Green New Deal and the new zero carbon, if not carbon reducing world that it has plotted out will mean a societal and political transformation, the kind that has not been seen in, well, a very, very long time. It makes Complete change, take, it makes a complete change of the way we live, how we live, even why we live, our reasons for living a longer, happier, healthier life of greater security, stability, equality, fairness, hope, and well being. I mean, it sounds pretty utopian, right? It is, but it's not utopian like it's science fiction. According to our guest, it's almost all already science reality. Our guest today is sociologist Daniel Adana Cohen, co author of A Planet to Win Why We Need. A Green New Deal A collection of four essays Collectively written With three past guests here On This Is Hell Kate Aronoff Alyssa Battistoni, And Thea Francos. Their book also as a forward by Naomi Klein, another past guest here on This Is Hell. We'll be speaking with Daniel about the essay titled Rebuilding the World, which discusses exactly how a Green New Deal would work and how that green new infrastructure could affect every aspect of our daily lives. Daniel is an assistant professor of sociology at the University of Pennsylvania, where he directs the Socio-Spatial Climate Collective, or SC2. Daniel's currently working on a book about housing, inequality, and climate politics in New York and Sao Paulo, tentatively titled Street Fight Climate Change and Inequality. In the 21st century city I'm betting that he's going to have to change The name of that because there's a lot of things Called street fight right now that might be a little bit Upset about that and throughout this week's show We will be naming our Favorite books to be featured here On This Is Hell in 2019 If you want to buy a gift for someone other than This Is Hell swag you can find it at our website Thisishell.com when you click on support Consider our list of books as Possible gifts for loved ones This holiday season so you might Want to get out a pen and paper or just get Ready to type the titles into your phone. And as it's our first hour of the week, we'll have some rotten history following Daniel and our conversation on the Green New Deal. Later this week on This Is Hell, Penn Donovan is author of the book School is Stupid Notes from the Classroom. Penn gives her firsthand account of what kids are exposed to in school as she recalls her eyewitness account as a school teacher's aide. Penn is an artist born and raised in New Zealand and currently residing in Australia. She argues, school is stupid because it is built on the premise that our kids are empty vessels that need filling up. That old notion that we are born sinners and must be shown the right path. It's time to allow children to follow their own learning directions and thrive in an atmosphere of enthusiasm and agency. School does little to develop our children as functioning adults, let alone artists. Instead, it demands homogeneity, compliance, and adherence to the business model. It's time we saw how education is indoctrination. Alex, have we confirmed any other guests for the rest of the show this week?
2: Uh, yeah, Nicole Ashoff is on, on uh, Tuesday, and I'm still working on that time, uh, but a Tuesday afternoon after pen and she's going to be talking about uh, her big piece in Jacobin on uh, being anti-self-driving uh, cars. And then on Wednesday, uh, Maya McDashi will be on to talk about her piece, Beyond the Lebanese Constitution, a primer.
1: Of course, I think at least, wait are we going to end this week's show with Jeff Dorchin doing a moment of truth do you know yeah hey, let me ask him all right brave enough to be live dumb enough to be goofy stupid enough to think that we can be a regular part of your weekly hangover this is hell and Alex has this week's hangover cure and Alex I think I did not give you oh no you got the whole thing
2: yeah right. I got it right. uh, this week's hangover cure is egg and chips and a bottle of leukozad leukozade
1: I'm not well, probably
2: sure. Lucosade. I'm pretty and sure it's just Gatorade in England in right? ar- it used to be called Glucose aid but then they, cha- they dropped the G oh that's right in an article I was reading on Wikipedia in an article at the wick guardian titled what's the best hangover cure for the morning after an election coco Khan writes i've been working on my hangovers for years i've tried it all pickle juice milk thistle of course the only true cure is abstinence but the search has led me to discover emotional hangovers <laughs> an emotional hangover is the empty lethargic feeling you have post big night i have to post every night <laughs> but without drinking usually it follows an intense experience be it the joy of getting married or the disappointment of a failed test Apparently, the brain responds to heightened emotion in a similar way to booze and reels from it in the same way. The UK's upcoming vote will leave me with a hangover of both kinds, alcoholic and emotional. So when I think of that morning, I know what I I know I won't have a strategy to deal with it. But I've learned this tip and I will share with you. Egg and chips and a bottle of Lucozade isn't the worst place to start. That makes this week's hangover cure egg and chips and a bottle of Lucozade.
1: And a discussion and conversation on uh, emotional hangovers, which was far more fascinating than the actual (laughs) hangover cure itself. You are listening to God's favorite radio show. Prove us wrong. This is hell. And we really do want you to prove us wrong. All you have to do is email us your proof that this is not God's favorite radio show to Chuck at thisishell.com, Chuck at this is hell.com, or you can message us directly via Twitter at this is hell radio, or you can send us a message through our Facebook page, facebook.com slash this is hell radio. Every year we announce our annual list of favorite books to be featured here on This Is Hell. And that's exactly what we're going to do right now. Well, not all of them, but a couple of our favorites that we discussed on the show with the book's author. The number of books that make our favorites list varies over the years because do you think there really are any rules for the This Is Hell annual favorite books list other than their books, and we talked about them on the show with the people who wrote said books? That pretty much covers all of the rules. So this year... Our list will include, hmm, we'll do 13 books. We'll announce two now, then two after we talk with Daniel Aldana Cohen on the Green New Deal. And we'll name a couple more later on this week's show. We'll then continue announcing the rest of the books to make this year's list throughout this week's live stream and podcast Monday through Wednesday at ThisIsHell.com And on our broadcast world premiere on WNUR 89.3 FM Chicago Sound Experiment this weekend In chronological order of the author's appearance here on This Is Hell In other words In no order of preference whatsoever, the first book on our list this year is the book that was most cited during interviews throughout 2019 by far. I asked about this author's writing 11 or 12 times on the show after they'd been on the show. I asked a question to a guest citing not only the same book, but the same quote, and it's a powerful quote that is at the heart of so much of what we've discussed here on This is Hell in 2019. That quote is, we all feel the ricochets of injustice savaging the landscape. The pain and urgency of our collective hurt make it easy for some to believe that our present-day human rights movements like Black Lives Matter are a result of recent police shootings and civil brutalities. I caution against this. The Black Lives Matter movement and the Blue Lives Matter movement and the All Lives Matter movement are shrapnel in the long and rarely acknowledged American presumption that Black people are less than human. Again, the long and rarely acknowledged American presumption that black people are less than human. That's a powerful quote. The first book to make this year's list of favorite books to be featured here on This Is Hell is A Bound Woman is a Dangerous Thing, the incarceration of African-American women from Harriet Tubman to Sandra Bland by scholar and writer Damaris B. Hill. Damaris's book, A Collection of Love Poems to Incarcerated Black Women Throughout History, reveals the long and rarely acknowledged American presumption that black people are less than human. Damaris Explains how black women have been leading a fight for their very humanity since the colonial era in the U.S. Her work investigates what mass incarceration means for black women today and throughout history. And I'm not a person who normally seeks out poetry as each essay and chapter, whatever you want to call the writing in Damaris's book, is accompanied by a poem. And these poems are... Brilliant in their structure. Our first book on our list of favorite books featured on This Is Hell in 2019 is Damaris B. Hill's *Abound Woman* as a dangerous thing: the incarceration of African American women, from Harriet Tubman to Sandra Bland. Find out more about Damaris at DamarisHill.com. Follow her on Twitter at Damaris Hill. and listen to our February 9th interview with Damaris at ThisIsHell.com. The second book to make this year's list of 13 books to be discussed here on This Is Hell with their author, favorite books of 2019, Force and Freedom, Black Abolitionists and the Politics of Violence by historian Kelly Carter Jackson. Kelly's book is one of those books that would make a fantastic stocking stuffer for that racist aunt or uncle you see every year. And if it doesn't fit in their stocking, then you can tell them to stuff it somewhere else. Kelly shows that as slaves continued to lose more and more rights just prior to the Civil War, yes, unbelievably, things were actually getting worse for slaves as we approached the Civil War, black abolitionist activists turned against the moral opposition to force and non-resistance white abolitionists had been imposing on African Americans. Instead, black abolitionists chose force and violence as a strategic response to the brutal system of slavery, which they wanted to overthrow. That violence and the threat of more left the Union with two choices, either fight a civil war to end slavery or prepare for the bloodiest slave rebellion The world had ever seen black abolitionists have been erased from history for far too long and they are finally getting their due with the unprecedented work by kelly the second book to make our favorite books featured on this is hell in 2019 is kelly carter jackson's force and freedom black abolitionists and the politics of violence find out more about kelly at her website kellycarterjackson.com that's kelly k e l l i e carterjackson.com listen to our march 2nd interview with kelly at our site this is hell.com and you will be able to hear all our interviews with all the authors whose books made this year's list playing all day on I don't know, Alex, what do you say? New Year's Day, we'll make a big loop, and it'll be like 12 hours of these 13 interviews. So that would make your hangover cure for January 1st, 2020, listening all day to all 12 hours of our conversations with authors whose books we liked best in 2019. We told you so. This is hell. Coming up on this week's show We'll learn how a Green New Deal would change Nearly everything about our daily lives We'll find out from a former educator That school is stupid I guess we'll be talking to Nicole Ashoff About why driverless cars are dumb And we'll be getting a refresher Getting a primer on Lebanon From a writer at Judea And we'll wrap up with a moment of truth Possibly from Jeff Dorchin I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-tooth radio show Host Chuck Mertz Producing this week's show, Alex Jerry The planet's on fire. So yes, this is hell. The Green New Deal could change everything. Everything about the way we relate with the world, each other, and our actual daily lives. A Green New Deal means a completely new way of living. So no wonder so many conservatives and reactionaries oppose the plan. Here to help us imagine exactly what a Green New Deal means. Maybe sociologist Daniel Aldana Cohen is co-author of A Planet to Win, Why We Need a Green New Deal, a collection of four essays collectively written with three past guests here on This Is Hell, Kate Aronoff, Alyssa Battistoni, and Thea Riva-Francos. Their book... Also has a forward by Naomi Klein, another past guest here on This Is Hell. You can find out more about Daniel at aldanacohen.com. That's A-L-D-A-N-A-C-O-H-E-N.com. And you can follow Daniel on Twitter at Alda Tweets. Alda Tweets A-L-D-A-Tweets. Welcome to This Is Hell, Daniel.
0: Thank you Chuck it's great to be here and and, and help <laughs>
1: yeah, it's really nice and humid this time of year you right we uh, right. outline how a radical uh, green New Deal could build landscapes of no carbon splendor in and beyond cities our overarching goal is limiting energy use while simultaneously improving quality of life reducing demand shrinks the amount of minerals we have to draw out of the Earth's crust and the less total clean energy we have to produce the faster we reach zero carbon we get there by treating the whole energy system system is a public good, not a private amenity, connecting dots between photons and transit, electrons and housing, photovoltaic and sunbathing. The argument that's marched out every time anyone suggests making the energy sector or any sector a public good is that the government is not as efficient or effective and creates far more wasteful spending than the private sector. This is the exact Argument CNN's Fareed Zakaria uh, recently made during a report on the possibility of Jeremy Corbyn, the Labour Party leader in the UK, becoming British Prime Minister. Corbyn has mentioned deprivatizing the energy sector, so Zakaria's show ran the Chiron underneath Corbyn of Spectre of Socialism. And to nobody's surprise, the word deprivatize is not known by my spell check. So, does making the energy sector a public good that it will does that mean it will necessarily become more costly, more ineffective, creating a perfect site for government corruption when it comes to hiring workers in that sector? Because that's what we're told over and over again when anything is even suggested that they might want to deprivatize it.
0: Thank you, Chuck. That's a great question. Um, I mean, first we should point out, right, there is a specter of socialism in this conversation, but there is also the Incredibly harsh and brutal reality of climate change already, um, and so we might actually want to try something new. Uh, the question about, you know, more public energy system is a is a great one. Um, obviously, we don't think that uh, taking far more democratic and public control of the energy system is going to cause all these problems. Um, quite the contrary. I think the overarching goal, is, as we say, and as you read out uh, that passage from the book, is that we have to reduce the amount of energy that we use. Uh, we simply have to do that for a couple of reasons. One, if we don't, then we are consigning the rest of the world to this endless trend of material growth, which is just not sustainable, not compatible with either social justice or preventing the climate emergency. Um, and the second reason we need to reduce how much energy we use is that's the only way that we can decarbonize our energy uh, quickly enough to get to zero carbon. And the private sector isn't really good at any of that. Um, at, v- at the best, the green capitalist kind of model is to build, 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 grow, go, grow, except green. Um, and this is at the very same time that we need to use less energy, that we have to find a less resource-intensive form of affluence and a much more egalitarian one. Um, so, you know, if we look at big transitions in the economy when they've been relatively successful, we can think in the U.S. case of the New Deal. We can think of the war mobilization. We don't want to build a ton of bombs, but we know that the public sector, when it moves really quickly, can get stuff done. Stuff done. And when we look at really unsuccessful times uh, of transitioning the economy, for instance, the green neoliberal efforts to have the system we already have, plus address the climate change of the last 30 years, they've essentially achieved uh, nothing. There's been progress in the technology of solar panels and wind turbines, and that's great. But we're not trying to make change on the margin. We're trying to turn over the entire system. And for that, yeah, we need the big public sector, big public investment, and to coordinate that with democratic control by communities on the ground.
1: So is the Green New Deal then about a lot more than only, and it's a a big thing to do already. Is it about more than only addressing climate change? Is it even bigger than that? Because conservatives have been warning us that climate change is a socialist plot for years. And we've been really, you know, uh, Fox News viewers, not me particularly, but Fox News viewers have been really uh, concerned about that. So is the Green New Deal about a lot more than just addressing climate change? Is it the socialist plot that the far right has been warning us about for so many years?
0: Um, well, it's not a plot. Uh, it's not a socialist plot. Climate change is the physical manifestation of burning up all the fossil fuels and totally dis- disrupting and sort of shredding the the natural carbon cycle. Um, but you know, Naomi Klein was right many years ago when she wrote, "This changes everything: capitalism versus the climate." That she pointed out that, that conservatives were onto something because what they realized you know, decades ago, far before the so-called left, let's say the Democratic Party mainstream, conservatives realized that if you take the climate change science seriously, then there's really nothing that you wouldn't do to prevent essentially the calamitous and apocalyptic destruction of civilization, which is what extreme runaway climate change would do. Um, and the conservatives understand as well as anybody else would that if you look back at history at how do you make an incredibly rapid transformation of the economic system and do it in a way that has buy-in, because it's relatively egalitarian and fair, then you're going to be looking at examples like the New Deal or the war mobilization. Um, actually, if you look at the United Kingdom, the period of rationing during World War I and then again in World War II, those are the times when life expectancy for poor people went up the most, because in the midst of this very uh, rapid economic change that they made to deal with the war... Um, They could only build enough political support to do that by providing uh, sufficient food and supplies to poor people. And that actually raised their standard of living compared to the capitalist every day. But I think the kind of, you know, bigger question you're asking is, can you, as some of the centrist swanks want to say, can you separate out the carbon question from the social question? And the answer to that is just no. Um, If you follow the carbon off of the graph and into the actual reality of everyday life and how the world operates, then you find that carbon isn't all the things that we're already fighting about. So just take housing. Housing is responsible for 15%, roughly, of the United States greenhouse gas emissions. There's no non-political way to tackle housing. Transportation, 15% of greenhouse gas emissions. So that's fundamentally about public transit, cars, biking, walking, if it's about biking and walking and transit, who has the resources or who has the right to live in transit-connected areas and walkable areas. So our view is you're going to have to make a transformation to housing. You're going to have to make a transformation to transit simply to save uh, human civilization as we know it. And that transformation absolutely has to be just and egalitarian and democratic. A, if we're going to make the change quickly enough, and B, if we're going to build a good enough world that ordinary people are going to fight hard enough to actually win it.
1: You write that energy dominates, and I want to make sure when I say you write, this is a collective writing by all four of the authors. You write, energy dominates climate discussions at present. It's the cause of most carbon pollution. About four-tenths of U.S. energy is currently consumed in the form of electricity, mostly produced from fossil fuels. The rest mainly comes from their direct combustion, as in gas-powered cars or coal-fired plants. The easiest way to decarbonize energy is to electrify almost everything that now runs on fossil fuels, from stovetop cooking to bus travel, so that it can run on renewable energy instead, while also increasing efficiency and building clean power supply. But as you point out, electricity is produced by burning fossil fuels, a refrain from the anti-clean fuel crowd has always been, where do you think clean electric, electricity comes from? It comes from dirty coal. Why is electricity driven by fossil fuel any better than just burning fossil fuel? Aren't they both, in the end, burning fossil fuel, as conservatives claim?
0: That's right. That's a great question. Um, so there is some possibility of things like carbon-free gas, basically, which you can create synthetically, um, uh, through things like uh, hydro- um, electrolysis, but uh, that's a small part of any future energy system. So I think we, we have to focus on the, the big stuff. Um, we need energy. We need energy to make food warm, to cook it, uh, to stay warm in the winter. We need energy to be um, cool in the summer, um, in, in many cases, and in many parts of the world. We need energy to get around, to make things that we need, and so on. So we need energy. Um, the main way that we get it, as you said, is by burning fossil fuels, and that's just got to stop because that is what will ultimately kill us um, and It's important to note um, as you were saying, you know it 's not just that we we do this burning uh, in power plants, but we literally burn you know we burn gas on our stoves uh, we burn gas or, or heating oil um, in our homes to keep them warm and sometimes to heat up uh, water um, so the vision here is that you have to the only way to create clean energy basically is through electrical systems, and that means that all the systems we have that are not electric, we have to make electric and that already has a huge energy saving right because if you burn fossil fuel you 're losing about half of that energy in waste heat that 's why the car heats up when you drive it um, gets very hot to the touch so electrification is already more efficient but as you said, once you electrify, then, okay, where is that electric power coming from? And we have to take all the fossil fuels that are creating electricity, and we also have to replace them with wind turbines and solar panels, and in some cases, uh, things like geothermal energy. Um, so to, it, it's, it's actually kind of mind-boggling how massive a transition we need right now. Renewables, uh, especially wind and solar combined, still account for well under 10% of our total energy use in the United States. So this is, again, why we need that big public investment uh, and to move incredibly quickly. And, it, and that's why we want you know, union jobs doing the work, installing the energy, uh, producing the energy, transforming our appliances, transforming our buildings, transforming our transit systems, we really need to kind of reorganize the, the whole physical infrastructure that we live in and some aspects of our everyday life so that we can sort of power our existence with the wind and the sun. Um, and, the, you know, the upside of that is that since this kind of degree of transformation is, is necessary, we can make that really egalitarian. Um, we can have community cooperatives uh, owning and governing a lot of our solar power and a lot of our community wind you know, small scale wind farms. Um, We can have new social housing. We're going to need to build new housing anyways. We can build new social housing to the highest green standards that will use virtually no energy or no energy at all. That technology exists and it's happening all over Europe. Um, And so we can solve problems like the housing crisis at the same time as we're decarbonizing uh, the building stock. We can greatly improve public transit and through a combination of social housing and transit improvements, we can actually make it affordable to live next to the subway stop, to live next you know, near where you work, so that you can walk to work. So there is, I think, a huge opportunity here. And opportunity is a weird word because it's a word that businesses use. But there's, a, I guess, you could say, there's a chance. There is an opportunity um, that comes from the changes. Everybody, every neoliberal walk knows we have to make the energy system. Well, now politically, we understand that that's a chance to make. Society more egalitarian, more democratic. And we have to, again, because otherwise no one's going to fight for this. And if no one's fighting for this, it's just not going to happen fast enough.
1: You write these days public debate about energy turns on the narrow question of how quickly and cheaply we can build wind turbines and solar panels. But that's the easy part. Wind and solar costs are plunging so fast. That much of the country, it's more expensive to keep burning coal than to close those coal plants and absorb lost revenue and build new wind and solar. And we've heard about how in the North Sea, how the wind turbines in the North Sea are now uh, actually far more cost effective than burning fossil fuels. They are actually, they don't need any government subsidies, uh, which is great for the UK. So, will the market, will costs force us toward a more clean energy future? To what extent is the market? working, at least to some degree, when it comes to responding to climate change?
0: Yeah, I, I think that's a great question. Um, the, the role of markets in this is, is complicated. Um, what's happened in the last, say, 30 to 40 years is that clean energy has gotten cheaper far more quickly than anybody expected. Um, really, the only people who saw how quickly the price of solar and wind would drop were groups like Greenpeace. They were mocked. But the major energy, like International Energy Association, Energy Information Administration, the big forecasters all got this wrong. Um, and this is a story of technological ingenuity. And in part, it's a story of markets. But what's often left out in this kind of neoliberal um, fantasy talk is that a huge amount of this happened thanks to public investment through you know, universities and thanks to public subsidy. And, um, Direct subsidies, uh, rate payers in Germany, for instance, agreeing to pay more for clean energy because they didn't want to keep running coal, actually kick-started the Chinese solar panel industry. Um, here's the problem. We're talking about change on the margin. So right now, it is already cheaper in, let's say, Georgia and the United States. It's cheaper to build and put into operation new solar farms than it is to run the coal plants that already exist. But the solar panel factory that is building those cheap solar panels is not what actually changes a society's energy infrastructure. That's going to take massive political mobilization to bankrupt those coal companies that exist, to take them out of business, to make sure that the workers in those factories uh, and in the mines have their pensions secured, that they have other jobs that they can move to that pay just as well. And it's going to take a political movement to kind of break the cartel of these fossil fuel uh, investor-owned utilities, which are refusing to make change, and to instead impose a better system, which in the southeast of the U.S. is mostly solar uh, and in some cases wind. So I think... The problem with the, the market lens is, A, it doesn't even understand how its products got so cheap, and B, it doesn't have a theory of change. It has a theory of, oh, things might work out, and there are some cases, but in practice, it's only through major political decisions and truly mass mobilization from below that you're actually going to get system change. The market is fine to change at the margin, but we need system change
1: how difficult is it to deprivatize any sector isn't that i mean there's this sense in the united states at least that anytime something is privatized it's privatized forever and you cannot deprivatize it how difficult is it to deprivatize any economic sector
0: i mean that's a great question and and i should just point out i mean i don't think we're talking about nationalizing every solar factory in the world or or necessarily any of them i mean we're talking about taking public control of utilities um potentially having federal authorities like the Tennessee Valley Authority, having more authorities like that, moving towards more cooperative ownership of energy, municipal ownership of utilities or of energy companies, that sort of thing. Um, the actual manufacturing, I think in the short term, you would you would still see private companies um, doing that. So you're looking at a mix, but where the control over the system is in public hands. Now, how hard is it? I mean, there are legal hurdles, there are political hurdles, there are economic hurdles. Our view in the book is that you know this is – the kind of change we're talking about, a big, huge Green New Deal, is not something you can just do in ordinary, everyday politics. You're going to need a mass mobilization, and you probably need to take advantage of a moment of crisis. Um, so we talk in the beginning of the book about how when Obama was elected in late 2008, there was a huge financial crisis. Um, and at that time, for the gov- when the government props up the economy in the wake of a crisis, it has enormous bargaining power. It essentially is propping up the entire global economy. And many people were saying to Obama inside his transition, uh, people, for instance, the head of uh, you know, Fannie Mae, said, you know, you could just buy up all these uh, homes that are defaulting and rent them out to their occupants, and literally not a single person would be displaced. They wouldn't really even be foreclosed on. Um, and the Obama administration, on, on point after point after point, said, no, that's socialism. We're doing this the old-fashioned neoliberal way. And Obama himself actually wanted to build high-voltage transmission lines that would help move clean energy from the windy Midwest to the coasts. Uh, and his advisors convinced him that they couldn't simply because it's not normal for the government to build transition. So I think our vision in the book is that we know there's another recession coming. It's around the corner. We hope and we'll fight for uh, you know, progressive in the White House, we know that this economic crisis is going to coincide with climate disasters because they're happening every month now, or even every week. And so I think our view is that you need a really big push with a lot of mass mobilization behind it and the power of the federal purse. And in that kind of liquid moment of a huge green stimulus, it makes it possible to do things like a big raft of nationalizations that would be hard to do in ordinary, everyday political life. So I think, again, that's why we focus on, you know, federal politics where you have that federal investment power, this idea of crisis, and the need right now, I think, to start building the ideas and the projects and the proposals that people can organize around once you see that recession and the potential of a green stimulus. Um, the last thing I'll just say quickly, you know, when Obama got in in 08, um, and I'm sure you remember, there weren't that many people in the streets fighting for a real, democratic green stimulus in response to the financial crisis but the left is so much stronger now than it was you know a decade ago i think we can be confident that we will be able to bring a real amount of people power and new ideas um into the picture and that's when i think we fight for a lot of the big changes like nationalizing uh, or taking state control of a huge number of electric utilities for example
1: we are speaking with sociologist daniel aldana cohen he is one of four authors of the collection a Planet to Win, Why We Need a Green New Deal, which has four essays that have been collectively written by three by Daniel and three past guests here on This Is Hell, Kate Aronoff, Alyssa Badastoni, and Thea Francos. Their book also has a foreword by Naomi Klein, also another past guest here on This Is Hell. Daniel is an assistant professor of sociology at the University of Pennsylvania, where he directs the Sociospatial Climate Collaborative, or SC2. You can find out more about Daniel at aldanacohen.com. And you can follow Daniel on Twitter at aldatweets, aldatweets. You write, more energy now flows up to the grid from below. Rooftop solar panels, home and vehicle batteries, and other so-called distributed energy resources send electricity up the same wires that it comes down from solar farms and wind turbines and dams and nuclear plants. When they're plugged in, electric car batteries can pull power down or send it back up. Do we all then, not only collectively, but individually need to start producing clean energy, each and every one of us to account for the energy needed in a clean energy system? Should we all be putting solar panels and wind turbines on our roofs and in our yards in order to accelerate the process toward a clean energy system? Or is that the wrong way to look at it in that individual uh, agency way?
0: Yeah, that, that's a great question, Jack. I think what, one of the complexities of the green economy is that there are so many things that we need to do that seem so similar to what the kind of green neoliberal ideology is that it can be very confusing for people. So take, you know, the example of solar panels on your roof or batteries in your in your home. that would help st- store that solar energy. Um, these are really good ideas. Uh, rooftop solar is an amazing thing because even though it's not as efficient as a solar farm, it doesn't take a transmission grid to move it around. Um, if there is uh, you know, an emergency and the power lines go down and you have a solar panel in your home, you have some resiliency. And if you have that battery in your house, that, c- that could sol- can store power from your solar array for the nighttime, let's say, but it could also be a resource for the grid. So if, let's say, suddenly a huge number of clouds pass over, but it's still a very hot and humid day, that battery could, could contribute a little jolt of energy to the overall power grid to help multiple people keep their hyper-efficient uh, air conditioners on. So there is a huge role for the, the home the community, things like electric cars, electric buses, uh, and so on. I think the problem with the neoliberal ideology, right, is that they then turn it around and say, that's a matter of individual financial decision making. That is a matter of individual responsibility. You know, we all have to go green as individuals. But we know that that doesn't work. Um, We know that's not an option that everybody has. It's not a smart way to make big collective change. So I think what we have to Get more into the mindset of is understanding how the level of the community and even the individual home has to be a part of a broader democratic system um, so for instance it 's not you are making a financial decision looking at you know spreadsheets on your kitchen table uh, on your laptop. oh, should I get a solar panel what 's the right financing rate and so on. No, the vision is a democratic public utility comes to your door and says, "Hey, guess what um, let 's send someone up to your roof and see what the The quality of the roof is, it might need a public subsidy to repair that roof so that we can then put solar panels on top of it. Or maybe that roof is ready for solar panels, we'll come by later in the day, and all that's going to happen is your electricity bills are going to gradually shrink as time goes on. Um, So I think that's the, you know, one of the challenges we're working with is to really change the common sense around decarbonization, get away from this idea about individuals going green as a choice that's good for their bottom line or that signals their virtue, they're showing off to their neighbors, and more that individuals are participating in a, in a broader democratic transformation of their communities. Um, you know, And I think, again, if you can think of examples from, from the New Deal where some of the most successful programs, Works Progress Administration uh, and others, um, all the way down to, to Victory Gardens in World War II, You you can have big change at the federal level and individuals pitching in, and that doesn't have to be the neoliberal mindset of, oh, I'm responsible for this as an individual. It's a collective endeavor that we all take part in.
1: You write that the other big spatial dilemma is transmission. The National Renewables Energy Lab finds that a 90 percent renewable energy grid will require doubling of the length of current energy transmission lines. Proposed wind fields, solar arrays, and new transmission lines have all been slowed and often blocked by protests from the communities where new projects are planned. Greens sometimes decry opponents as selfish, not in my backyard, NIMBY types are victims of Koch brothers' propaganda. In fairness, there's some truth in both. But it's reasonable to be concerned about drastic changes to the place you live, especially when the costs are local and most benefits go too far off urban consumers. Do we need a cultural shift then away from selfishness and toward selflessness? And if so... How difficult will that be considering our decades of neoliberalism, which has taught everyone to take care of themselves and all our problems will be solved? Because another aspect that you talk about is that we need to decrease demand. And all I could think of when I was reading your work is that the biggest change is going to be a cultural change more than anything else. How can we uh, get get to that point of decreasing demand and starting to think about a, a lot less selfishly and a lot more selflessly?
0: That's right. That's a great, you know, that's absolutely right. Like we're, we do need a shift from selfishness to selflessness, but yeah, how do we get there? Um, so you know, I think that sometimes the, um, there's a liberal model here, which we're familiar with now, which is this kind of it's a bit voluntarist. And it's this idea that, Oh, if only we could all just have a better idea of how to live, then, you know, it's sort of like cultural change, arrow, and eventually economic change. Um, And I think on the left, we have a more satisfying account, which is that they actually have to happen at the same time. Um, so in terms of the transmission lines, you know, this is a really big challenge, and there's a huge amount of opposition in the in rural parts of the U.S. to a lot of clean energy development and especially to big transmission lines. There's over 200 anti-wind groups in the country. In um, Canada, which is where I'm from, just, you know, up north of us, uh, there's a group called Mothers Against Wind Turbines. Uh, so I think we, we do have to be sensitive to, to people's concerns that, yes, in cities, we want to switch to pure renewable energy, but we're not focus on the fact that that will totally transform the landscapes of people around us. And so, I, you know, my, our argument is that we really do need to take local concerns seriously. In some cases, we may need to slow down. We have to have more local ownership. What's interesting is if you look at a place like Germany, almost half the clean energy is generated by cooperatives. And those are mostly rural energy cooperatives in small conservative towns. And because rural um, villages have seen collective energy development through things like small wind turbines as a way of saving their local economies and also as a way of taking ownership of their own energy, that has then meant that the conservative political culture in Germany is not anti-wind or anti-renewable in the way that it is in the U.S. Um, So I think one piece to your question, you know, how do we create a more collective and sort of selfless mindset that thinks about clean energy is, well, you give people ownership whether it's through their union, whether it's through community ownership schemes in cities where you buy a solar panel that's in another, uh, in a more rural area, whether it's about owning community solar that's local on rooftops, whether it's about rural areas actually having uh, ownership through energy cooperatives, through public making, or just simply through buying in uh, with dollars or through their, their local tax base, local and community ownership of the energy system then gives you a very different approach than if you're just like, oh, this infrastructure is being dropped on top of me by some liberal from New York City. So I think, and then we could talk about other examples of this, like having green jobs and union jobs, making it work, having the public sector coming in and helping you retrofit your home with the most modern appliances that are far more efficient. So I think that we're using less energy mainly through efficiency, not through kind of patronizing lifestyle demands. Um, We're using less energy because our homes are going to have more automated systems, sort of like sunflower homes that dry your clothes when the sun is is beating down on the the panels um, and not necessarily in the dead of night. Um, And we're building a more collective spirit by actually giving people an economic stake in cooperative ownership and cooperative decision making. So I think that's our vision. Yes, people need to be less selfish, but we're not just gonna get there by browbeating them or through memes (laughs) on the internet, we're gonna get there by actually giving them an, an economic ownership stake in the new economy.
1: You quote the Princeton energy engineer, Jesse Jenkins, writing that when we increase demand flexibility, the need for battery storage plummets. And you add, this is vital to avoid unnecessary mineral extraction in sensitive ecosystems. We increase flexibility by using so-called smart meters and appliances. Smart because they tell utilities how and when we use energy and because they allow systems to be remotely adjusted. Big tech companies are pioneering these systems, largely for affluent homeowners and businesses. And you write about how some people were very upset about those smart meters, even somebody, I think it was in Texas that you mentioned, who actually shot his smart meter because he was afraid the government was doing some sort of surveillance on that person. So smart always brings with it, at least in today's day of privatization, always brings with it surveillance. In order to distribute energy in a dynamic, flexible way, will consumers have to accept more surveillance into their lives?
0: Yeah, that's that's right. Uh, and it's funny the way you talk about the word "smart." I mean, I think most people now you hear the word "smart meter" and just picture Pete Buttigieg knocking at your door, promising you some super-efficient solution, <laughs> and uh, not very convincing. <laughs> um, uh, and and in fact, and and you know, it's not just the right that has opposed smart meters; it's also often been the left in um, places like Providence, um, because smart meters, which are essentially um, little machines that that can a- potentially adjust electricity use in your own house. And report directly back essentially to the utility's computers can be used to do remote shutoffs. It means that if a low-income household isn't paying their utility bills, then in theory, a utility could use the smart meter to just shut off that home's access to electricity without even having to send a worker down to see what's going on. Um, so it, it's, it's potentially very problematic. But on the flip side, the argument that we're making is that there's an efficiency of the technocrats and of the neoliberals, and that's not what we're after, but there is also an efficiency of global and even local solidarity. And that's, if we, if, for instance, um, I have a technological system that allows me to put my clothes in the dryer, and then when the wind is blowing or the sun is shining the most, that's when the clothes go, then that means that that renewable energy doesn't have to get stored first in a battery and then dispatched when it's most convenient for the consumer. And, that, and if you have this, um, what we call like a sunflower home system, uh, where the utility is in conversation with your home energy system and making the most optimal choice, those batteries that you don't have to build, that's mining you don't have to do in communities in the north of Chile, where the mining is really problematic from an ecological point of view. Um, and so in case after case, what it means to have a more efficient system is simply that you are building fewer solar panels, you're building fewer batteries, building fewer wind turbines, and that means less material extraction, which we think is is really optimal. And that means then that just as you said, we have to not have surveillance by private companies like Google Nest or the Amazon Alexa. They shouldn't be running our homes. Instead, we need to have public systems that use algorithms that any coder can look at. I mean, anybody can look at, but if you're not a coder, I don't know, like me, I'm not going to be able to make sense of an algorithm, but I would trust communities of coders like in Wikipedia to make sure that if my home energy system is being um, optimized by codes, then those people who run sites like Wikipedia should be able to look at them and make sure that those are fair and egalitarian and that nothing shady um, is going on. So that's kind of the, the model of replacing Amazon, Google-style surveillance with public, uh, totally open, and democratic control of these um, algorithms. And just the last thing, quickly, you know, you would think that the public sector, oh, they can never create this. But actually, it was university researchers who first came up with the first system to, to optimize home energy. use, a, a system called HomeAware that came out of Texas. But, of course, the public system is always being outspent. By these um, private companies like Amazon and Google. So our vision is line up with the tech workers, people like Amazon employees who are fighting to make Amazon a better, uh, you know, lower carbon company. Line up with this growing tech movement and go even further, and really build up the idea of a people's technological system and people's algorithms that are going to, in a public and democratic way, make sure that we are not building things that we don't need. You write that let's. And at the same time, you know, making life more comfortable, more safe, more healthy.
1: Right. And you write, uh, let's be clear, in a radical Green New Deal, there would be no shutoffs because an affordable, comfortable home is a human right. An affordable, comfortable home is a human right. Will housing be a right under a Green New Deal? And if it is, how devastating would that be to the real estate industry? Not that I really care. We just had a conversation with Kianga Yamada-Taylor and her book Race for Profits about how racist the real estate industry has been forever here in the United States. So I don't really care if they take a bite a little bit but uh what will happen to real estate what happens to that uh, economy uh, economic sector when all homes are a human right
0: I mean, that's a great question you know something like half of global wealth is held in real estate um but uh you know they're rare of the day when i think to myself wow thank god for the real estate sector that really made this part of my life better <laughs> that really made my day better Wow, i'm so glad that real estate entrepreneurs are making super profits keeping my rent up you know um, otherwise, I might might have a break. Um, so, you know, who is afraid that the government can build really high quality public housing? Actually, it is the real estate industry. They are afraid of that competition. They know the public agencies can do a better job at value than they can. Um, and in fact, in the 1930s during the original New Deal, we came very close to having a kind of Vienna style social housing system in the U.S. And it was killed in 1937 by the real estate lobby. The kind of um, they won a system where you had, private, uh, you had public subsidy for private mortgage owners, which are substantial and created white racist suburbs and segregated suburbs. And then you had social housing only for the very poorest and only as a last resort and very low quality. So what we're proposing instead is retrofitting the public housing we have now, creating much, much, much more social housing, creating that to the highest green standards, and then taking all the low-income and middle-income homes and retrofitting those with um, through public investment. Um, So, yeah, this is not a proposal to save the real estate industry. This is a proposal to, as you said, make clean, comfortable, safe, affordable, modern homes, a human right for everybody. Uh, And I think most people would choose that reality over, you know, bigger trucks on Wall Street.
1: You write decades of racist housing policies have hardened the racial wealth gap, whereby the median white family has about $100,000 more than the average black or brown family. That inequality extends to indoor energy use in the middle Atlantic states. Over half of black households suffer energy insecurity, the inability to pay heating and cooling bills without major sacrifice. Is energy insecurity something that is relatively new? Because I'm wondering if this is something that did not exist when the utilities were publicly owned, and it's only come up since they have been privatized?
0: Uh, That's a great question. I mean, energy energy and security is old, and it's had different forms. I mean, in in the New Deal era at the beginning, there was no electricity, even in rural areas. Um, But the reason you had programs like the Tennessee Valley Authority is that private utilities weren't stepping up and providing uh, affordable power to to anybody uh, in that region. I think energy insecurity, for some reason, has just not gotten a huge amount of attention in the United States. Um, And it's one of the ways that in this like neoliberal media landscape, we just pay attention to very few stories and don't think very much about the plight of um, black and brown people and of working class people. Um, So certainly the increasing privatization of utilities uh, has made things worse. But I think this is an old problem. It's a really big problem. Again, you know, half of black households in places like the Mid-Atlantic can't afford the energy bills. Uh, and this is a problem that we can just completely wipe out with public utilities, with home energy retrofits, um, and with simply prioritizing every person in the country having, you know, complete and total access to the energy they need to live uh, healthy and healthy. And, um, affordable home and comfortable and safe home life. Uh, It's really just a question of priorities.
1: What you describe sounds like a society, a culture that reflects the way we relate with energy, with nature, and in doing so, reconsiders the way in which we relate with each other. Do you think there is something inherent. Is there something about fossil fuels that we relate with them in such a highly irresponsible, polluting, climate change-causing world of inequality? Does clean energy mean better living and fossil fuels mean, well, whatever this is? Are we guided as culture, guided by the way in which we consume and distribute energy?
0: That's a great question. I mean, fossil fuels are just no good. I mean, and we know that um, extracting them is brutally violent. Um, they tend to be owned by gigantic corporations. Uh, they're really inefficient. They're really dirty. If, even if there weren't climate change, they were causing you know millions of deaths a year just from respiratory illnesses. Um, I do think we the thing about clean energy that I think we have to remember is that there really is a fork in the road. I think right now between an eco-apartheid vision that we could think of. Emmanuel Macron in France exemplifying, and we saw the Yellow Vest protests against his, you know, he wanted to cut taxes for billionaires and then raise taxes on gasoline uh, that would hit rural and suburban people who didn't have access to public transit. And I think you're going to see that vision emerge in the U.S. I think you could probably see people like Pete Buttigieg and Marco Rubio um, as converging ultimately on this vision of, yes, they may want clean energy, but they don't necessarily want it for everyone or to be affordable. Um, so I think clean energy gives us the possibility of a really restorative, caring relationship to other people and to, the, and to the non-human environment. And that's what we're fighting for. But we have to acknowledge that clean energy all on its own is not intrinsically beautifully progressive. There is a version of solar fascism, and we're very worried about it in this book. Um, and then there's a version of eco-socialism, which is about the kind of shared human and democratic values we've been talking about today. And I think we, have, we are gonna have to fight very hard to make sure that the clean energy vision that we get is the eco-socialist vision, is a vision of democracy, of ordinary people controlling their place in the world and their physical relationship to the land. Uh, And and that's not going to come for free just because the energy comes from the sun.
1: I've got one last question for you, Daniel. We are speaking with sociologist Daniel Aldana Cohen, co-author of A Planet to Win, Why We Need a Green New Deal, a collection of four essays collectively written with three past guests here on This Is Hell, Kate Aronoff, Alyssa Battistoni, and Thea Rio-Francos. This book also has a foreword by another past guest on our show, Naomi Klein. You can find out more about Daniel by going to his website, aldanacohen.com and you can follow Daniel on Twitter at Alda Tweets. One last question for you, Daniel, and as we do with all of our I guess our final question is the question from hell, the question we might hate to ask, you might hate to answer, our audience is going to hate your response. You write, when we reinvent state institutions and invest democratically, we'll reshape our built environment in ways that decarbonize, make us safer, and abolish inequalities. There will be more than electric wires linking beautiful public housing, speedy trains, and verdant landscapes of public renewable power. These projects will be linked in an irresistible dream, ordinary people seizing control of their place in the world." How much of a threat, then, is the fight against climate change and the Green New Deal to nationalists, conservative, right-wing reactionary, Christian evangelical, and fundamental Republicans, people who you call eco-fascists? Is the Green New Deal a political strategy to crush the rise of the very far right in the United States?
0: Well, thanks for this question. Um, The hell that we're we're in right now sounds great, actually. Um, The... Yes. I mean, the short answer is yes. Um, you know, we and our view, neoliberalism is just shredded social ties. It's made life for the majority of Americans extremely hard, something like half of Americans living paycheck to paycheck. Um, nobody loves fossil fuels. Most Americans, by a huge margin, want to have renewable energy Um, There is kind of an appetite for change, but I think at the same time, there is not a huge amount of trust in public institutions. There is a lot of fear and anxiety, and this is a situation that people like Donald Trump and white nationalists are exploiting, and it's a situation that recalls the 1930s, when in many parts of the world, right-wing fascist forces that brought violent paramilitaries into essentially alliance with the government that used racism, anti-Semitism, colonial violence to kind of create these horrifying um, coalitions, they they took power. And they they could only do this in a way because social ties were so shredded. People were so anxious and terrified. Um, And that is the moment that we're in right now. And so what we're proposing with the Green New Deal is not green austerity. We're not proposing that everybody's only allowed to wear clothing uh, made out of hemp. We're not proposing that people make massive individual cutbacks to their own quality of life. In fact, most people in the U.S., have a lot of problems with their quality of life. What we're proposing is creating a world of true, genuine freedom, where you have access to clean energy, where the built environment is much more efficient, where you can walk and bike and take the bus around to the places where you work, where you get services, where you get care, where your home is not a crushing financial burden, but simply a beautiful place to live. And we're talking about a world where you really get to spend the time With the people that you love having fun, whether that's hiking in the woods, going to see a play, putting on a play, playing sports, you name it. So I do think that this vision is fundamentally about answering the anxieties and concerns uh, and suffering that ordinary people have with a vision that is diametrically the opposite of fascism or eco-fascism. Uh, and is instead about collective well-being, uh, collective affluence, fundamentally public luxury. Um, I think this is winnable. Most of the technologies we talk about in this book exist. They simply need to be deployed at greater scale and, in some cases, improved. And this is the vision most important, that we can win in the next five years. We can have new social housing. We can have new public transit. We can have much more affordable rents. We can have transformations of people's own homes. Uh, We can have a massive deployment of clean energy within just the period of five years, four years, six years. Um, So we have to stop talking about climate change in terms of 2050. We have to stop talking about climate change as being aloof from the great political struggle between fascism and democracy. And we need a short term plan so that when the next economic crisis comes, we answer it with a political system, a social system, and a system of cultural values, like you said, um, that really you know, bring us the world that we need and that make us feel good about being alive and good about living with other people all around us. I'm really excited. I think that this is something that we can win.
1: Daniel, I cannot thank you enough for being on this week's show, and the book that you've collectively written with Kate, Alyssa, and Thea really is fantastic, and we're hoping to do an entire series of interviews with each and every one of you so we can highlight this book, A Planet to Win, Why We Need a Green New Deal. It is the most comprehensive description of how the Green New Deal would work outside of just reading the Green New Deal itself, but this actually extrapolates far more into it and investigates the Green New Deal in far deeper depths. Thank you so much for being on. On our show this week. I really appreciate it. And tell Kate, Alyssa, and Thea that this is just a fantastic work, and you should all be very proud of it.
0: Oh, thank you so much for having us on the show and for having a bunch of us and showcasing this argument. Um, we're super grateful for a media outlet that really takes this too seriously and gives gives time to, to flushing it out.
1: All right. Thank you, Daniel. And take care, and I'll annoy you in the future to have you back on the show. I can't wait. All right. Thank you. Take care. Bringing you bong-hitting journalism since 1996, this is hell. It's time for nasty, gnarly, nauseous, naughty, nerdy, icky, drippy, sticky, goopy, gloppy, globby, gory, rotten history. December 9th, 1967, 52 years ago today, Monday. Just three days after recording his song, Sittin' On, the Dock of the Bay, and who knew Sittin' On was in parentheses? I didn't. The Rhythm and Blues singer, Otis Redding, and his band, The Bar Kays, who knew that his band was called The Barcase? I didn't, I don't know. Performed on an, an Upbeat, a syndicated TV show based in Cleveland, and also played a gig at a Cleveland nightclub. I want to try to find videos of Upbeat online. I bet those are hot. The next afternoon, December 10th, the weather was rainy with fog. Not good for flying, and always bad in rotten history. But Redding and four band members boarded a twin-engine Beechcraft airplane anyway, along with their pli- pilot and a valet, to fly to the People's Republic of Madison, Wisconsin, for the next concert. Just four miles from their destination, while making their final approach to the airfield, the pilot lost control of the plane, and it went down in Lake Monona, southeast of downtown Madison. Not to be confused with Lake Wingra, Lake Mendota, Lake Wabisa, Lake Kagosa, Kengos- Lake Kegansa, or even Mud Lake. All well, lakes apparently in or around Madison as there's some debate over which lakes are Madison Lakes with numbers varying from 4 to 6. Again, I had no idea. Redding's trumpeter, Ben Colley, who had fallen asleep during the flight, woke up with the plane when the plane hit the water and was thrown out through a hole in the fuselage could not swim, and as he stayed afloat in the frigid water by desperately clutching a seat cushion, he could hear Redding and the others yelling for help as the plane sank with them trapped inside. Almost 20 minutes passed before a police boat arrived to pull Collie from the water. Suffering from shock and hypothermia, he was the only survivor of the crash. The 26-year-old Redding, the pilot, and the others all died one month later, Redding's tune, Sittin' On, Parenthetically, the Dock of the Bay Shot to number one on the singles charts Cauley suffered from nightmares For the rest of his life And for some reason, I'm doubting the royalties Didn't really make up for those nightmares On In Rotten History On the night of December 11th and 12th, 1920 99 years ago That would be what next, no, Wednesday and Thursday British auxiliary troops And every time British troops make Rotten History It gets real rotten British auxiliary troops looted and burned, see? Told you. British auxiliary troops looted and burned buildings in the city center of Cork, Ireland, and the British really saved their most rotten behavior for the Irish, with British soldiers robbing and shooting at people in the street, acting in retaliation for an earlier Irish republican ambush of a British patrol in which One British soldier was killed. The British auxiliaries used gasoline and grenades to destroy some 300 homes, 57 businesses, the city hall, and the city's central library. Because disproportionate force is what the British Empire was all about. And... They've left quite a legacy of it behind in many of its former colonies. For almost two years, the Irish had been engaged in a bloody struggle for independence from Great Britain. And in London, members of the British government tried to blame the burning of cork on the Irish Republican Army. That's how scummy the British Empire and its military was. But it soon became clear that the blame lay with the British auxiliaries, who were infamous for their lack of discipline, their drunkenness, and their aggressive attitude toward the Irish. Yep, it was an empire of dicks enforced by an army of a-holes, and they got along fabulously. Though British regular troops apparently did not participate in the destruction, they also made no attempt to stop the auxiliaries. See? Dicks. Another six months of bloodshed would pass before a ceasefire led to the treaty that brought independence to most of Ireland, through the, though the North remained under British rule. And if there's anything that you have learned over the years from our segment, Rotten History, I hope that it is the British are an awful people with a horrible history filled with brutality and destruction that we are suffering from to this very day and will for centuries into the future. Look, I'm not saying everything is the British Empire's fault. That would be ridiculous. The United States has done its fair share in destroying the planet, and the people who live on this planet. I'm just saying most everything is the British Empire's fault. So the next time somebody even mentions the freaking British monarchy consisting of a frighteningly shallow gene pool who believe they were chosen by God, if they mention that British monarchy in any glowing or admirable, admiring way, just tell them to stop and then tell them to tune in every week to This Is Hell and Rotten History because chances are very good that the British Empire's pure evil will be discussed. That's Rotten History and This Is Hell. Uh, Alex, have you figured out what a question from hell is for this week?
2: Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You want it? Sure. What are you giving Bernie Sanders for Christmas?
1: What are you giving Bernie Sanders for Christmas? What are we giving to our listeners for uh, answering that question? Correctly? A Christmas present. Okay. <laughs> what are <you> giving <laughs> All right, we'll figure it out. Sanders for Xmas. See, because I know shorthand.
2: I know he's Jewish, everyone. That's why it's a question from hell.
1: This week, we are announcing the 13 books that are our favorites to be featured here on This Is Hell and in interviews and with their respective authors. So these are the top 13 books in no particular order of our favorite books to be discussed here on this is hell this year earlier we mentioned how the first two books to make the list a list that is in no order of preference were damaris b hills a Bound woman is a dangerous thing the incarceration of african-american women from harriet tubman to sandra bland and kelly carter jackson's force and freedom black abolitionists and the politics of violence the next book to make the list is a work we discussed on Four twenty, April twentieth, and it's so four twenty. In fact, one of the reasons the book was selected is that we were accused of being involved in the conspiracy theory that is anti-conspiracy theory, which is a very four twenty analysis of our next book to make the list. Republic of Lies, American Conspiracy Theories and Their Surprising Rise to Power by Journalist Anna Merlin. Conspiracy theories are as American as and as boring as baseball and Disgusting as hot dogs And even more boring as Chevrolets Conspiracy theories have always been part of the American political landscape But the recent surge in conspiracism Is different because this time Conspiracy theorists are actually Entering the highest levels of power in the U.S. government Considering what has happened in the White House With its pointless pursuit of far-right Conspiracy theories Anna's writing is prescient Despite what those who contacted us To expose our role in the anti-conspiracy theory Conspiracy theory might have you believe the third, ber- third book in our list of 13 favorite books to be featured here on This Is Hell in 2019 is Anna Merlin's Republic of Lies, American Conspiracy Theorists, and Their Surprising Rise to Power. Follow Anna on Twitter at Anna Merlin M-E-R-L-A-N. Find out more about Anna at her website, AnnaMerlin.net. And listen to our interview from 420 with Anna at our website, ThisIsHell.com. The fourth book to make our list this year is Rape from Lukisha to Hashtag Me Too by award-winning broadcaster, academic, and author Me Too Sanyal. San argues successfully that rape is the most heinous of all crimes but the way we talk about rape and especially don't talk about rape gives society the impression that rape defines the rest of the survivors life having a kind of control over the survivor never fully surviving from rape when in fact instead of being perceived as a vulnerable victim they could be seen as someone with the incredible will and strength to survive the most heinous of crimes. I get it. Rape is a very difficult topic of discussion and conversation. But the more rape is a topic of conversation, the more we can fight against the stereotypes and the inaccurate power relations that those stereotypes about the most heinous act of crimes depict. The problem is, challenging those assumptions can get you in a lot of trouble, as it did with Mithu, whose book on rape led to rape threats against her, The fourth on our list of 13 favorite books to be featured on This Is Hell this year is Mithu Sanyal's Rape from Lukisha to Hashtag Me Too. Follow Mithu on Twitter at msanyal. S-A-N-Y-A-L. Our conversation with Mithu was not one of those tragedy-centric, victimized woman and all men are inherently rapist interviews you hear in the mainstream corporate establishment media whenever rape is discussed. And you can hear our interview with Mithu as well as those with all the authors whose books made this year's list at thisishell.com, and we'll be playing them all in a loop, I'm thinking, as our hangover cure on January 1st, 2020, New Year's Day. So if you go to thisishell.com, you'll be able to hear all 13 of these interviews interviews in a loop or just one long 12-hour show so far the topics of the four books to make the list are black male or sorry black female incarceration black abolitionists violently provoking a war to end slavery far-right conspiracy theorists taking over the White House and rape which is exactly what you would expect from a show called this is hell or at least you should and if you don't you're going to be greatly disappointed in the content of our show Live from Hangover Country, this is hell. And uh, let's see. Oh, who's on next week's show? Who's on tomorrow's show? That's what I should say. What's happening on tomorrow's show? Uh, Penn Donovan will be on to
2: talk about her book, School is Stupid, Notes from the Classroom. And Nicole Ashoff will be on to talk about her Jacobin piece against self-driving cars. And that's at Tuesday tomorrow at 2 p.m. Central.
1: All right. God's own time zone. And then uh, who's... And uh, so that's on Tuesday. And that's a two-hour show on Tuesday. And then what's happening on Wednesday? Uh, Really excited to have... uh, pull this up, I would
2: have a piece off from Jadalia called Beyond the Lebanese Constitution. And that is from, sorry, I just booked this uh, while the show is happening. That's from Maya Mikdashi, uh and she'll be talking about her piece Beyond the Lebanese Constitution, a primer, which is uh, big and great. It's uh, Jadalaya. I'll have
1: a link up to that on our Facebook page uh, momentarily. We hope to see you at our weekly Wednesday meet and greet. This is Hell Office Hours at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon, Chicago's little Indian neighborhood. More than a meet and greet, this is Hell Office Hours is a think and drink. Join us every Wednesday evening for This is Hell Office Hours at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon, the bar downstairs from this here studio. And don't forget our annual This is Hell Holiday Office Party happens on Wednesday evening, December 18th. 18th, beginning at 6 p.m. and going until somebody does something awful. Is your office too cheap to throw a holiday party? Make our holiday office party your holiday office party. Invite all your co-workers to the This Is Hell Holiday Office Party. Don't particularly like... Everyone at your office Then invite the cool kids to the This Is Hell Holiday Office Party Does your work not have an office And you all work together from your own homes Then invite all your co-workers to the annual This Is Hell Holiday Office bar- Party Where we promise everyone who attends Will get a This Is Hell related gift Do you work in one of those shared work environments Where you rent a space with your coworkers And they don't allow alcohol to be drank there They don't really want you to be partying there then make This Is Hell Holiday Office Party your holiday office party. And we promise everyone who attends will get a This Is Hell related gift. Need a last minute gift? We'll also have all of our This Is Hell merchandise available. That's Wednesday, December 18th, beginning at 6 p.m. and running until who the hell knows. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show host, Chuck Mertz. Producing this week's show is Alex Jerry. I want to thank Daniel Aldana Cohen, our guest on this week's show. Also, thanks to Alex Jerry for producing. Thanks to Ronaldo for Rotten History. And this week's hangover cure is egg and chips and a bottle of Lucozade. There's only one way to get over all of the problems that we've introduced to you on this morning's show. That's by sitting down in the lotus position, turning your palms towards the sky, focusing on that burning white dot in the middle of your forehead and saying these simple words, everybody's stupid. My demon is
0: on my butt. Uh. My demon talks to me in profanity like a Uh sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my
1: demon tries to put me on a hell ride.